Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list. You're listening to Righteously, written and recorded by the artist Time Magazine, once called America's Best Songwriter, and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Lucinda Williams. Named one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, Lucinda will join us in a few moments to chat about her decades-long career as one of the most respected songwriters on the planet. Part 1 well, Paul, the listeners have not yet had the pleasure of hearing your voice, um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and prepare them and say, um, your voice doesn't sound great today. No, it doesn't. And uh, I'll just let the listeners know, uh, I have a condition called spasmodic dysphonia, and uh, it, it's a neurological thing that causes your the muscles in your throat to uh, contract and clinch at just the wrong time, uh, basically when you're trying to use them. And uh, the way to treat it is you get uh, shots of Botox in your vocal cords or in the muscles surrounding your vocal cords, I should say. Um, so it sounds worse than it feels. Um, uh, don't have sympathy for me. Have sympathy for your ears today because you have <laughs> to listen to this. But uh, for me, it's I, I had a shot last week, and so it's, it takes me a week or two to kind of recover. So... Um, just just picture me looking beautifully while I sound this bad. Well, and that's the upside of the Botox is it does make you look beautiful. Your your face is so yeah. young and uh Well, it's particularly my throat. It's yeah. just I have a really young looking throat. You have a very young throat. Yeah. Uh you sound like you smoke four packs of cigarettes a day, but your throat <laughs> looks twenty five. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the upside. Um but uh yeah, sorry man that you're uh you're struggling with that today. That's a bummer. Well, you know, no worries. I'll 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 fight through. And again, my apologies to our listeners. Um, we'll uh, we'll we'll try to lean on you as much as possible, today, Scott. <laughs> well, I'll uh, I'll try to pull my weight. <laughs> um, you know, uh, on on a serious note, um, boy, we've had a couple of big losses in the songwriter world recently, yeah. and a, and a couple of losses that have uh, really meant something, uh, particular for, for us here at Songcraft. Um, Mac Davis passed away yeah. recently and Mac of course was, um, the guy behind in the ghetto and a little less conversation. I think he had five or six, uh, Elvis yeah. cuts. Um, but he was also, you know, an artist and, and had hits of his own, um, with songs like it's hard to be humble and hooked on music and, um, Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me, which yeah. was uh, a Grammy-nominated number one hit. Um, but he was in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, the, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and was even, you know, having songs recorded, you know, by Bruno Mars and Avicii and and folks, you know, like in, in recent years. So huge, uh, 
influential career, but um, more importantly, probably one of just the warmest, kindest people that we've ever encountered while yep. doing this show. For sure. And, and that's saying a lot, honestly, because we've encountered some really warm and kind people in this process. But um, Mac just brought us into his house like we were friends. Um, and I felt just immediately disarmed by him and by his, um, yeah, just his warmth and friendship. And even to the point where after we were done, uh, he, he let me pick up his guitar and he showed me how to play the intro to In the Ghetto. Um, <laughs> right. It was just like a an absolute fan moment for me. Um, and, you know, also an, an interview for us that, that carried some weight kind of in our early days of doing yeah. this podcast. And um, so I... I, I feel grateful to, to Mac, honestly, for that experience. And, um, you know, we didn't get to spend more than just that afternoon with him, but I, I kind of felt like I got to know him and, and re- really sad to hear his passing. Yeah, he was one of those guys that, you know, hospitable uh, yeah. is a great word for him. It was like being welcomed into his home. It was it was as if he just thought of us as old friends. He just yeah. had a very easy going. He, he, you know, he's not the type of guy you were nervous around, even though he'd accomplished all this great stuff. He just seemed like this really warm and, and friendly dude. And, and, uh, and it was great. And I remember I have a photo of you playing his guitar right after he showed you that, that opening lick to in the yeah. ghetto. And you have a look on your face that reminded me if you just gave a kid like the keys to Toys R Us and we're like, Oh, it's yours now. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that was like such a cool moment. And yeah. you know, of course he knew, he knew that that was a cool moment and yeah. he was like all about giving us the time and the space and, and providing that. And in fact, the episode uh, with Mac, which was episode 18, we wound up splitting that over two weeks. It was there was a part one and a part That's two. Right. We've only done that. that. We've, we've done that twice. We did that with Swamp Dog and Mac Davis. The only times it's ever happened. But it's because there was so much great content. Yeah. He yeah. had so many good stories. That yeah. It was like it was hard to, to know where to stop it. And in fact, there was there's even more that we didn't wind up putting in the final episode. Um, just. Just incredible. Um, you know, if if you're listening to this now and you haven't heard the episode, um, go check it out. And I, I believe it's in part two, one of my favorite all-time stories that we've ever heard in doing this podcast is about Mac going to the movies with Elvis. Oh, yeah. So um, look out for that. <laughs> That's I'm, a great I'm not going to tell too much about it because I really do want you guys to go hear the episode. But Mac going to the movies with Elvis, it's it's one of my favorite stories ever. It's <laughs> so good. Um and, you know, even closer to home, um, our guest on episode 11 of Songcraft was Al Kasha. And yeah. Al and I were uh, acquainted um, through my knowing you, um, but you and Al um, really had a, a relationship and that, that went back multiple years. And so that one is not only saying goodbye to a, a songcraft guest that we spent a memorable afternoon with. But I mean, that's one where, man, I, I extend my condolences to you because mm-hmm. Al was, you know, an important part of your life. Um, maybe share with folks a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what Al meant to you personally. Yeah. Well, Al, Al really felt like family, uh, to me. I, I met him, uh, probably around 2000, 2001. Um, and he he really took an interest in me as as a young writer, and began to give me give me some tips um, on how to improve my songs, and then invited me into my first co-writing session ever, um, which turned into my first cut ever, um, and 
subsequently my first song on the radio ever. Um, all, all came through Al. Um, it was, you know, opportunities that he extended to me, and he didn't have to do that. Um, so, I, you know, even at the very start, uh, I found myself really grateful for this man. And then the more I got to know him over the years, his wisdom, his drive, um, his friendship, his care, he would just call and check in. And um, Al and I just had, I, I can't even tell you how many days we spent together having lunch and working on songs and talking about ideas. And I would go with him. He, uh, Al uh, would do these songwriting seminars and I would go and play the piano for him to illustrate the points that he was making. And so mm. for me, I also got to just soak up all this knowledge, all this wisdom. Yeah. Um, and our interview with him uh, was like just a, a little bit of it. It's like you got a little taste of what my days with Al were like. Um, I mean, his his resume speaks for itself. I mean, two Academy Awards, songs cut by everyone from Aretha Franklin to Jackie Wilson to Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. I mean, Al Kasha was the real deal. And uh, and he man. was kind of a, you know, Al, Al had written a book with Joel Hirshhorn, his songwriting partner, um, years ago, like one of the first kind of songwriting instructional books, which I believe was called If They Ask You, You Can yep, Write a Song. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of songwriters of the previous generation before us, like that was a big, important thing for them, like to, to sort of peek behind the curtain. And Al kind of reminded me of a teacher. He just yeah. kind of had that way about him where everything was kind of a lesson. And, and, he was one of the first guys who was really a professional songwriter who was kind of, you know, at the, at the height of his game at the time and was willing to pull back the curtain and share some secrets. And, yeah. um, that was, you know, I remember, um, and, and Al was the, was episode 11 of Songcraft, but it was actually the first episode we ever recorded. Yeah. Um, and we went over to his house and we had no idea what we were doing. Um, <laughs> Even less all. than we do now. <laughs> yeah. And Al was so gracious to sort of let us experiment with this show by, by making him our, our test subject. Yeah. But I remember even him talking about um, like the word prosody, which I had never heard before he, he mentioned it, but what he talked about, you know, it's where the melody kind of follows the feel of the lyric and, you know, yeah. sort of like, let me take you down because yeah. I'm going to, you know, like with the, the lyric says down, the music goes down and the importance of that, of marrying the lyric and the, and the music. And it was like, he had all these nuggets. He was from the old school. Like he yeah. was from the Brill building, you know, era. And it, he was like this living link to, to that classical form of of pop songwriting and uh yeah so i i didn't get to spend the time with al that that you did but i know he was an important friend and yeah. uh, and mentor to you so i'm sorry for well, you know for that loss you. you know i i i look at it and and i i sort of take it as a as a kind of mantle um because i i think one of the common threads to all these stories we tell about al is this this spirit you know similar to what we said about mac you know, the, the the talent is one thing, but the spirit is another. And Al's was a teaching spirit. It was a helping spirit. It was a caring spirit. Um, and that has resonated through my life, you know, even more than the amazing songwriting wisdom that he gave me. And it, it, may, it makes me want to do the same for others. Um, I, I don't I don't know what kind of mindset, you know, it takes to to make you want to reach out to a young writer and just say, hey, I'm going to give you a chance. 
um, that's that's not common to most people. Yeah, I think that's something that we have to dig deep and find. Um, and uh, Al makes me want to dig deep and, and find that and, and to be that kind of man. So, you know, thank you, Al. If uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, maybe you're listening. And yeah. uh, so th- thank you so much for, for the years and, and for passing that on. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, you know, the thing about Al and about Mac is they both were masters of their craft. And this episode features um, an interview with Lucinda Williams, who is another master of her craft. Um, she is, in terms of respect, um, one of my favorite songwriters. I have the utmost respect for her integrity and her voice and the way that she has carved out a niche as a writer that to me transcends typical lyricism and is kind of vaulted into the area of literature. Um, she is phenomenal. I've been a fan of hers for many, many years as have you, Paul, I know. Um, and to have the opportunity to speak with Lucinda, uh, in and of itself was a thrill to find out that she was also as warm and welcoming yeah. a person as Mac Davis and Al Kasha and was such a delight to, to speak to, um, was just icing on the cake for us. It was a, it was a fantastic conversation. She has some great stories, great insight. Um, so even as we remember the legacies of, of guys like Al and Mac, uh, we are also reminded that there are still amazing craftspeople among us uh, from whom there is much to learn, and that's why it's important to soak up these people's wisdom and, and knowledge while we have them here with us. Yeah, I couldn't say any better, and if I tried to, my voice would sound like trash if I did anyway. So <laughs> I, I might let you just put the punctuation on this. All right. Well, we'll just uh, we'll leave it there and you can stop talking and let that voice heal. And next time uh, for the next episode, you know, I'd appreciate it if you try to sound a little smoother because (laughs) it's, you know, you're irritating me. So I'll try. I appreciate that. Part two. One of the most revered songwriters on the face of the earth, Lucinda Williams, was once crowned America's best songwriter by Time magazine. She first gained widespread attention after Mary Chapin Carpenter made her song Passionate Kisses a top five hit and earned Lucinda a Grammy Award for Country Song of the Year. She went on to release a string of critically acclaimed albums that earned her a total of 15 Grammy nominations spanning the genres of rock, pop, country, folk, and Americana. One of the primary architects of the Americana genre, Lucinda has received more Americana Music Association Award nominations than nearly any other artist, and she was the first female recipient of the AMA's Lifetime Achievement Award for songwriting. VH1 named her one of the 100 greatest women in rock and roll, while Rolling Stone named her among its 100 greatest songwriters of all time. In addition to her own success as an artist with songs such as I Just Wanted to See You So Bad, Right in Time, Essence, Righteously, Are You Alright, Come On, and Real Love, the daughter of famed poet Miller Williams has also had her songs recorded by Tom Petty, Elvis Costello, Lou Harris, Willie Nelson, Patti Loveless, Betty Lovette, and many others. Earlier this year, she released her most recent album, Good Souls, Better Angels. Lucinda, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Well, you know, as an artist, you've been based in Austin and Houston and back to Austin and Los Angeles and Nashville and back to Los Angeles and and now back to Nashville uh, once Mm -hmm. again, where you're currently living. You know, and a lot of people think of Nashville, of course, as this songwriting mecca. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what it was that prompted you to to leave there several years ago and and why you recently felt it was the right time to return. Well, um, my husband Tom and I still have our house in LA and, you know, we were just in Nashville so often. Um, Yeah. And recording here, you know, I did my last album here and it was more of a logistical thing where you know, we were just spending a lot of time here with staying in the hotel, (laughs) you know, and at a certain point we said, well, maybe we should get a little place here because, you know, and then kind of feel it out. And at the time we thought, you know, we'll kind of go back and forth. Sure. But of course, then the pandemic hit and, (laughs) you know, um, we're, so we've, you know, we're kind of stuck here. I don't mean to say stuck, like, you know, we want to leave or anything, but um some friends of ours are renting our house now in LA and you know we still love things about California and all of that I mean it's a beautiful state and we have great friends there and all that but um the other thing is though that it's just so much easier you know getting things done here because everything's closer together and it's changed a lot since I lived here before there are a lot more friends of ours here now um who kind of you know who used to live in LA or you know or here now and um I think it's a much hipper city now than when I was here in the 90s it it was still kind of conservative right and um you know so it just it feels more comfortable to me now and you know after a while in LA I mean it's just like any place it has its pluses and minuses and um you know, it just, it gets real big and it's hard to get around and it was getting more expensive and, you know, the whole thing. And so it's just kind of, um, it just sort of made sense. Paul and I are both Nashville natives, but have both lived in, uh, LA for more than 20 mm-hmm. years. So, so we, we get, you know, the, exactly uh, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, different places at different times. I mean, I've always want, right. I've, I've always been one to kind of go where, you know, I'm somewhere for a while and then, you know, I kind of get restless and I've always kind of been mm. like that, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of relocating, I understand that you were born in Louisiana, but mm-hmm. you moved around a good bit as a kid with your father who yeah. was well known in his own right. Um, tell us a bit about your dad and his profession and how, you know, being around him and experiencing different environments, how did that shape you as a creative person in your formative years? Well, I think a lot, in a lot of the ways, uh, you know, of course, like you said, we moved around a lot, which is in and of itself, you know, going to affect you, <laughs> I think, positively as a kid, you know, I wasn't. I don't feel that I was, you know, upset about it or anything. I kind of, I think I looked at it as an adventure. Um, the other thing that was, that was a big positive when I was growing up was that, you know, because my dad taught college, um, he, you know, creative writing. Well, actually he started in, a, his degree was in biochemistry. So that's what he started. He wow. taught first. And then he had <laughs> teaching creative writing and, and all of that. So, 
that meant that we were always in a college town, um, which are really the best kinds of towns, you know, to be in, I yeah. think. Um, and, you know, places like, well, he taught at LSU and Baton Rouge and, um, and, you know, we lived the last town, the last place we ended up was, uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he taught, you know, at the university of Arkansas there. And that's where he retired, but he taught at Millsaps in Jackson, Mississippi. We lived in Vicksburg. We lived in Macon, Georgia, um, just all around, all over, you know, um, wow. but he was kind of in the early years, you know, he was struggling as a poet and, you know, kind of bouncing between jobs and that kind of thing, you know, he's trying to find his footing, you know, back in those days when people started college, you know, you had to, uh, consult with your advisors and they would advise you as to what field they thought you would be better in, hmm. right. you know, and he wanted to go into the arts and they said, no, Mr. Williams, we think you're better suited for the sciences. Huh. Um, as he does have a scientific kind of mind, but you know, because they said that he said, okay. And you know, that's how he ended up in the teaching biochemistry, wow. but eventually he worked his way into teaching creative writing, even though he didn't have a degree in, in that or in English or anything. So wow. I saw him, I mean, this is another thing is, you know, I saw that struggling part with my dad, with him being a poet and everything. Mm, yeah. When it came time for me to, you know, strike out on my own and take chances and all of this. I mean, initially, of course, as my father, he wanted me to stay in school and get a degree to have something to fall back on, you know, hmm, right. which I completely understand. Um, but at the same time, he honored my my choice, you know, uh, which was to not do that and go out and see if I could make it, you know, yeah, yeah, and everything. So I had that kind of support, you know, from that creative support. Hmm. When you started making music, the term Americana didn't really exist yet. And, and you didn't necessarily fit neatly into, you know, one category, whether it be mm -hmm. rock or country or blues or folk, whatever. But yeah. I would say that that one thread that kind of runs through much of your music is southernness for for lack of a better term and yes. you know it, in some ways i think your your lyrics belong to the same southern literary tradition that gave us william faulkner and and flannery o'connor um and and i'm curious if if that southern literary world because as you most of these towns you mentioned where you guys lived were throughout the south did that mm -hmm. sort of Southern literary movement inform your sensibilities as a lyricist? Yes, absolutely, 100%. You, you really nailed it. And thank you for the, <laughs> you know, Flannery <laughs> O'Connor reference. Um, she was one of my favorite, maybe my favorite Southern writer. Um, yeah. I discovered her when I was a teenager, you know, just devoured her stuff. And she was, my dad said that, you know, described her as his um, biggest, his greatest teacher. She was kind of his mentor mm. and everything. Mm. So, but yeah, um, I met a lot of writers through my dad when I was growing up. And um, 
that definitely, you know, definitely influenced, you know, everything about what I do, really. I mean, yeah, I knew I was a Southerner, you know, I was from the South and I was proud of that, you know, and right. proud of my roots. My dad would talk about that a lot, you know, hmm. and yeah. um, just, you know, family, you know, roots became very important. You know, my my grandparents on my dad's side, you know, were real important people to me um, who I looked up to and you know, um, hardworking, um, socialist Democrats, <laughs> right. You know, Southern, I grew up around Southern, uh, you know, progressive thinkers, right. Right. You know, and they're the combination of that is just really unbeatable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's, a, they're just special. It's a special kind of, person you know right you know moving beyond your lyrics there's even a southernness to the sound mm -hmm. of of much of your music and, yeah. and one of my favorites of yours is fruits of my labor which is mm -hmm. the opening track of your 2003 album world without tears and to me that just sounds like a sweaty yes. sultry summer <laughs> night in mississippi you yeah. know Baby, I remember all the things we did when we slept together in the blue behind your eyelids, baby Sweet baby Chase your sin through the gloom Till I found these purple flowers I will spend all soon Smelling you for hours and I'm, I'm curious, it, it, when, when you're actually writing songs, when you're in the writing process, are you thinking of the vibe and the arrangement and the production at the time you're writing, or does that all just kind of come later when you're in the studio? That pretty much comes later when I'm in the studio, you know. Hmm. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm working on the lyrics and trying to get some, a descriptive scene happening yeah you know yeah. and i might have some ideas in my mind as far as kind of how i want it to sound or something like that but i don't really think about it that much it's all a fairly organic approach you know um the thing for me is because i think because i started back in the days when you know folk music was um the really big thing and it was all about you know, singing, you know, being a songwriter and singing, or even if you didn't write songs, you know, singing traditional folk songs, but just voice and guitar. Right. And, you know, so I really, I spent a lot of years with just, you know, my guitar and me. Um, and I learned, so I had to learn how to make the songs work that way. <laughs> and, you know, without a band, um, that didn't come till much, much later. And to me, that's still the best way to approach things. I mean, it depends on the kind of music you're into, but that you're trying to do. But, you know, it's always best if, when the song can stand alone. Sure. You know, and so that's where I've always come from, even though as I, as, you know, as I grew and developed and my music developed and all that, you know, I was 
started, you know, working with the band, but um, I still come from that same place. Right. You know, so, and you can see that when you, you know, whenever I, I have new songs, I always like to go and do demos of them just me, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. with my guitar, and I listen to how they sound, and I take, I send that to the band, and when we go in, when we're, as we're recording, sometimes I'll feel like, okay, we're getting off track from the original vibe that I had when I was writing this by myself, right. and then I'll say, and sometimes I'll say, you know, okay, let's listen to the demo, let's listen to the acoustic demo, mm-hmm. so I use that as a reference point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, looking back, even though you're revered as one of the greatest songwriters around, it's interesting to note that your 1978 debut album, Ramblin' on My Mind, featured covers by folks like Robert Johnson, Hank Williams, and Mm -hmm. A.P. Carter with no original compositions. Mm -hmm. Were you not yet writing your own stuff at that point in your career? Or was there another reason that you kind of introduced yourself to the world with an album of, you know, uh, other writers' material? Well, no, I was writing some of my own songs, but at the time, you know, I, I you know, I was kind of in awe of hmm. folkways and you know that whole world. Um, a friend of mine from New Orleans had put an album out. I was home in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and he had done an album for folkways. His name was Jeff Ampolsk, and he did this album called God, Guts, and Guns. <laughs> and we were on the phone, and he said, you know, you can make it out for Folkways, too. And I said, really? And he says, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, send him a cassette tape of songs, and, you know, I'm sure they'll like it, and, you know, you can put an album out. Well, of course, I was just, you know, beside myself with excitement, and so... The next thing I'm thinking, well, it's folkways. And I was familiar with them from, you know, as a kid, you know, eight, nine, and 10 years old and hearing Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and, you know, all of them mm. on the, the old folkways albums, you know? Right. So there's this kind of, you know, it's the very sort of reverence and coming from me about this. And, you know, I just thought, well, you know, I should honor them by doing, you know, more traditional kind of stuff and, you know, folk songs and hmm. blues and all that. And plus, I probably, I, I didn't really feel completely 100% confident, you know, about my own stuff. But that was really why, because I just thought, you know, they're going to like it. They'll prefer that, you know, I just kind of assumed that. Hmm. And so I sent them a cassette tape of these songs and, this is kind of a funny story. They sent me back a check for $250 and, <laughs> and a one page little contract, you know. How long did it take to spend that $250? <laughs> yeah. Well, a, an old family friend, um, Tom Royals, he, he was a civil rights lawyer in Jackson. Um, and he had a client who was an engineer at Malico Studios in Jackson. And he said, well, you know, he owes me a favor. Let me see if I can get some studio time one afternoon at Malco. And so he did that. And so I went to Jackson. I drove to Jackson, Mississippi and stayed at Tom Rawls' house and went in with this guitar player, John Gramado from Houston. And we went in one afternoon, you know, and cut those songs. Wow. 
But that's how I was able to, wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the flip side, your second album, Happy Woman Blues, uh, from 1980, was comprised of all original mm -hmm. material, uh, including I Lost It, a song that you would later revisit on your car wheels on a gravel road LP. I think I lost it. Let me know if you come across it. Let me know if I let it fall along a back road somewhere. Money can replace it. No memory can erase it. And I know I'm never gonna find another one to compare. And it wasn't until your self-titled album in 1988, however, that you began to reach a wider audience. And, and somewhere in that nearly decade gap, you moved to Los Angeles. And this was in the era of guys like Billy Block and Ronnie Mack when the Palomino was still right. open and, yeah. you know, Dwight Yoakam and Rosie Flores, Jim Lauderdale and all these folks were kind of combining, you know, rock and, and traditional country elements. Mm -hmm. um, what impact, if, if any, did that scene in L.A. at the time have on you as a writer? Um, I don't think a person is really aware or consciously of that sort of thing. I mean, um, I've, I've always been influenced by lots of different styles of music. So, I mean, when I moved there, um, you know, several of those songs off that road trade album were written after I moved to LA. Right. Um, and you know, there were other, there was, a, there were other artists there too, the long riders and, X and all that so it was just it was a pretty eclectic scene besides the one that you're talking about which was a great scene yeah that was a great time to be in LA right um I moved there in 1984 from Austin and um it was funny this friend of mine well I, I actually I went out to LA to do some gigs because an old friend of mine from Houston had moved out had moved to San Francisco and said, why don't you come out and, you know, I can help you, you know, get some gigs and stuff. And so I went out there kind of with the thought in the back of my mind, you know, I'm probably just going to stay. I mean, you have to remember back then, you know, I didn't have a lot of physical baggage, you know, <laughs> like right. I didn't have credit cards. I didn't have all this kind of, you know, so it was a lot easier to pick up and move, you know. <laughs> right. So... But, you know, I told my friends I was going to go out to L.A., and I decided to stay out there. And this one friend of mine who's a music journalist in Austin, he said, he says, oh, you'll come back to Austin. You're going to move back. He goes, because, you know, they put sour cream on all the Mexican food out there, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, that very provincial Texan thing. <laughs> and people thought, you know, they said, oh, you'll be eating a lot, you know, in L.A. You know, it's like this big bat, right. the big bad wolf, you mm. know. <laughs> right. Nothing could have been further from the truth. It was the best move I could have made, mm. you know. And um, Michael Gilmore, who's, you know, the music writer, he had written about me in an article along with Butch Hancock and Joe Ely and Jimmy Del Gilmore and... So I had sort of had a connection with him a little bit through, you know, just a couple other people who knew him. Anyway, he was real, uh, he was a big, he opened some, you know, doors for me socially when I moved out there. He would have these parties at his house and, you know, there would be lots of musicians and writers and, you know, that sort of thing. I found it to be a very open, welcoming scene. 
Yeah. Um, mm. And but anyway, I'm sure you know a lot of my music's been influenced by records that I've listened to as much as anything else. I mean, huh. you know, as much as live music. I mean, um, because most of the stuff that this what tends to influence me usually are people who have you know been doing it before me right who i've listened to and been inspired by like who are still a lot of the same people you know like neil young and bob dylan and you know nick drake and yeah well, th that 1988 self-titled album, I'd like to talk a bit more about that. It yeah. really included some of your now classic songs, like I Just Wanted to See You So Bad. And, and you were really kind of getting in the groove then as a creator. I'd like to hear a little insight on how you approached the writing process for that record. Well, um, you know, what? one of the things that really helped was, you know, up until a certain point, I was still working day jobs. I had, I worked at a couple of record stores after I moved out to L.A. and um, and, you know, I was playing around wherever I could and opening up for bands like the Lonesome Strangers and just, you know, I was just out and about as much as I could be and, you know, um, and at a certain point, this guy from Sony, uh, the Sony label in LA, he took a liking to me and what I was doing and, hmm. um, he, you know, set up a meeting and they offered me what was called back then what was called a development deal, hmm, you right. know, um, which was basically like, you know, they would give you enough money to pay your rent and stuff. And, you know, for I think it was like six months, you know, like here's enough to live on. You could quit your day job and all you have to do is work on songs, hmm. you know, and then at the end of that time or during at some point. You go in and make a demo of these songs, uh, which they pay for, you know, and then they decide, you know, if they're going to sign you or not. Right. I was on cloud nine, you know, so it took the support and love from people, you know, as I was going along, along this bumpy road, you know, to help me out, you know, kind of, kind of, right. you know, these angels, <laughs> Um, you know, whether it was sleeping on somebody's couch or, um, loaning me money and me not having, telling me they don't worry about paying me back, you know, and that kind of thing. Right. You know, yeah. um, and so anyway, at the time LA was real cheap. That was the other great, beautiful thing about it. I had a little duplex apartment in Silver Lake that was $400 a month. Wow. <laughs> those are the days. I know. Those were the days. Oh, God. <laughs> and so anyway, I, there I am. I've got a little sanctuary. I'm living by myself. You know, I've gotten untangled from this, you know, messy relationship that was going on in, in Texas. 
and I have enough money to pay the bills and my rent and buy groceries and so forth. And, um, you know, so I started working on these songs and, um, I had that one. I just want to see so bad. I had that one. Um, but Chains of Locks and Crescent City, those were written there in that little apartment. And, wow. you know, so, but I was given that gift of having the right, having that environment yeah, and everything. That's incredible. You know, I made a demo tape with Henry Louie, who had worked with Joni Mitchell and their coins. So he brought all these real cool people in, these guys from NRBQ and um, Garth Hudson, you uh -huh. know, and just a <laughs> menagerie of amazing artists. And we did this demo tape and then Sony passed on it. Here's the big turning point. Okay, Sony in LA said it was too country for rock. Right. So they sent it to sent it to Sony in Nashville. He said it was too rock for country. <laughs> so right. there I was officially falling in the cracks between country and rock. Right. Which became Americana later. Yeah, right. You were inventing <laughs> so, a genre. You know. There yeah. I was. Well, you know, I mean, the thing that's that's cool is once that album did find a home and, and was released, not only did it make a splash for you as an artist, but it, it also established you as a writer to be reckoned with when Patty Loveless gave you your first charting single as a songwriter with her top 20 take on the nights too long. And then uh, Tom Petty, who very rarely recorded other people's songs covered, changed the locks. I changed the lock on my front door so you can't see me anymore. Can't come inside my house and you can't lie down on my couch. I change a lock on my front door. Had you thought of yourself as someone who was writing songs that might be recorded by other artists, or were you just doing your thing as a singer songwriter and then kind of stumbled into the realization that, hey, like other people <laughs> want to record my songs too? Yeah. Um, I was just doing my thing, you know, and then it, it sort of, you know, kind of crept up and on, on me. I remember, you know, just, I mean, it's not like one day you wake up and go, Hey, you know, I'm a songwriter, but <laughs> at a certain point I realized, wow, I think I could do this, yeah. you know, this songwriting thing, right? you know, because I, you have to remember, I mean, I was all during this time in LA during these years, um, you know, I was still being approached by other labels and I was being told that my songs were not ready, huh. you know, and this, so I was getting, you know, messages like that, like this guy from Electra really liked what I was doing and he had a meeting with me and then he said, you know, well, you know, um, the, the now famous line, because <laughs> I repeated it so much, you know, none of your songs have bridges, you know, and I don't, they're not really complete yet. You need to go back to the drawing board. Well, he was referring to songs like Chains the Locks. Mm, right, right. That was one of the songs. Yeah. And also Paniola, you know, so on the one hand, I'm feeling more confident about my writing, but on the other hand, I've got guys like him telling me I can't get a record deal yet because, you know, my songs aren't, really finished huh, you know geez. and yeah so you know and w at which point i would go back to my little apartment listen pull out my neil young 
at Bob Dylan albums and listen to them again. Right. You know, to remind myself and that sort of thing. So, hmm. you know, it was just a weird time of the industry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, apparently, you know, Tom Petty and Patty Loveless thought your songs were finished. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, the, the biggest song from that self-titled record to get picked up by another artist was Passionate Kisses, which became a top five country hit for Mary Chapin Carpenter and earned you a Grammy for Best Country Song for 1993. About how she ended up recording that song and, and I'd love to know what that experience was like for you to to receive that kind of recognition it was mind-blowing I mean you know if you were if you were like walking by my side as I was going through all these things you know you would be blown away <laughs> I mean you know because I'd been doing this for a long time and all of a sudden but so the way that happened was that I went, I got invited to do a Riders in the Round tour over in Australia with Roseanne Cash and Mary Chapin Carpenter. And I'd met Chapin, you know, that's kind of her nickname. I had gone to see her at the Palomino, in fact, uh, at one point. And, you know, so we had met and she told me how much she liked my music and all of this. And so the three of us did this acoustic Riders in the Round tour over in Australia for a couple of weeks. This was in the early 90s. Um, and, um, you know, at, during that time when we were over there, Chapin told me that she loved, she had been performing Passionate Kisses and she was getting ready to put out her album, Come On, Come On. And she asked me, she said, you know, I'd love to have your blessing. I'd love to record Passionate Kisses. And I said, of course, God, you know. <laughs> right. That's awesome. And then, um, so when her album, was, her album came out, her, she wanted Passionate Kisses to be the first single. And her, this is another story I've told before because it's kind of funny now. But her label people said, no, we don't think that's a good idea. And she said, why not? They said, well, you know, it's not really a country song. <laughs> and Chapin, bless her heart, she stood her ground, right. you know. I mean, she was she was big at that time, you know, at that point. And she was being marketed, <laughs> I think, probably unfortunately, and she would probably agree, as a country artist. And, you know, we all know what happens with that when... <laughs> You know, Nashville just gets everything all confused. And right. that's what was happening. You know, so Chapin's, she's telling her label, you know, look, I want this, I want Passion Kisser to come out first as a first single. My audience loves the song. I've been performing it live. So finally they gave in, you know, and they said, okay. And it came out. It won a Grammy for Country Song of the Year, which wow. was just 
I kind of, I, I could imagine, you know, those people and everybody on Music Row kind of going, what? You know, <laughs> right. we don't even know who this person is. It's not a country song. How could it possibly, you know? So needless to say, you know, she shaping opened a big, gigantic door for me. Yeah. And sure. right after that is when I first moved to Nashville in yeah. 93. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after the, the, Sweet Old World album in 92, you experienced another major commercial breakthrough with the Car Wheels on a Gravel Road album, which won you another mm -hmm. Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album, this time as the artist, and introduced you as a singer-songwriter to uh, an even wider audience. And when I think about some of the classic songs on that record, um, you know, thinking about the way they're they're put together and, and, and the way that, you know, perhaps you were criticized previously for oh it doesn't have a bridge or it doesn't fit certain conventions mm -hmm. you know i listened to yeah. a song like you know like joy from car wheels and yeah every single line is repeated and there's this kind of like blues right. quality to that style but it's not 12 mm -hmm. bar blues it's kind of more like john lee hooker with kind of the one chord thing yeah. but it's not really that either and you know to me a song like that on the surface kind of feels like raw emotion but there's also this symmetry and this craft to the structure and and it's tightly arranged yeah. it's it's weird because it's like tight but feels loose if that makes sense uh, yes i don't want you anymore because you took my joy i don't want you anymore you took my joy you took my joy i want it back you took my joy i want it back i'm gonna go to west memphis and look for my joy go and look for my joy Maybe you was meant for some fun, my joy Maybe you was meant for some fun, my joy I'm gonna go to Slidell and look I'm wondering what that balance looks like for you in terms of kind of like spilling your feelings onto the page versus really crafting and, and molding and, and shaping. How does that how does that kind of work for you? Well, I think that's where some of the stuff I probably picked up, you know, from my dad. Um you know, because he was kind of my mentor in a way. I mean, I never studied creative writing or anything. Yeah. But, you know, um, I just, you know, I, I heard him read poetry and I, I was at so many poetry readings and, you know, I sat in on some of his creative writing workshops, you know, in the 70s um, when I was in Fayetteville and, um, just, and I would show him stuff when I started writing songs, I would show him and, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get his approval, you know, I wanted hmm. his, him to be proud of me. So there's always that in there, which I think is a good thing, you know, if it doesn't go too far that way. I mean, I think it's good to have a teacher of some sort, right? you know, somebody it doesn't have to be your father. It could just be you know, an older, another writer who's has more experience, Sure. you know? Um, so I would show my dad things and mm. he, you know, one of the lessons I learned was, you know, he taught me about the economics of writing and, you know, editing basically. Right. He was a great editor too. Um, aside from being a great poet. So, and I enjoy that part of it. I, I came to enjoy that part of it where, you kind of just, you do just sort of, you, you can, there's nothing wrong with just throwing it out there on the page. Right. You know, but, but then part of the process is going back and, 
you know, uh, crafting it. Sure. And that's just something that I learned, you know. I mean, part of it was instinctive and part of it was um, just learning. I think right. trial and error and, and having that feedback from my dad at a young age, like, yeah, that works. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Right. And, right. and learning how to, like, instead of, I was working on this one song and I was talking about this woman's dress, a picture of this woman in a dress or something. And my dad said, Instead of just saying dress, why don't you say sad? Oh, no, I said blue dress. And he said, why don't you say use sad blue dress, <laughs> not just blue dress? You know, little things right. like that. Right. And I don't know what that's called <laughs> in, <laughs> in creative writing, but, but you know, um, I started really understanding you know, that more about that right. as Makes I went sense. along and, and, you know, being more descriptive, you sure. know, like yeah. it, using the names of towns, mm, right. you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's hard to talk about your own songwriting. Right. To be, <laughs> right. Honest. To be analytical and objective. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, in, in 2001, you released Essence, the follow-up to Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, with a title track that yielded your first top 10 single at, at AAA Radio. And we've touched on the fact that your music doesn't necessarily fit into one neat category, but that was never more mm -hmm. apparent than that same year when you received four Grammy nominations in four very different categories. <laughs> we got Best Contemporary Folk Album, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for Essence, Best Female Country mm -hmm. Vocal Performance for Cold Cold Heart, and Best Female Rock Vocal Performance for Get Right With God. So uh, no. I, I want to ask, has that ever happened before? <laughs> and, and is there any one of those distinctions that you, that you kind of categorize yourself more as? Or do, when, when you heard that, you say four different categories, that sounds accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, I mean, I don't know what I would have said, you know, 20 years ago, but I would definitely say rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, because I mean, the thing is, see, that's a whole nother subject. It's so, you know, hard to put into words and discuss because, you know, different, you know, labels for different kinds of songs have different connotations for different people, you know? Yeah. So like when I say country, I mean a certain thing, Yeah, you know, I'm thinking Hank Williams, Laura Lynn, and there is that part of me. But, you know, other people say you have to clarify that now because right. if you say country now, I mean, you know, it could be anything but that. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's almost kind of the same with blues. I mean, you know, my like you said, I'm more into the country blues and Delta blues kind of thing. Right. Um. You know, but and then folk music certainly. I mean, nobody even uses that that name that category anymore. I mean, I think that should come back. I think that should come back with folk rock. Hmm. I think that's a good like what the birds are doing, and you know, right. But I mean, the thing is, all this stuff, all the great bands that influenced me were, you know, kind of transcended those categories. You know, like the band and, uh, 
Buffalo Springfield was a big, big, huge influence on me. <laughs> and yeah. you go back and listen to their albums, and they did, they had everything in there. You know, country, rock, pop, whatever you want to call it, you know. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever happened before in terms of being nominated in all those different categories. <laughs> but I do know that people are nominated in just categories that make absolutely no sense. Right. <laughs> right. You know, right. the yeah. category, the best female rock vocal for can't get right or get right with God. I mean, you know, that if anything, that's like a Delta blues, hmm. you know, blues gospel song or something. Right. I mean, don't these people understand the difference between blues and rock? I don't know. You know, it's like, okay, I'll take it. Thank right, you. right. You know, speaking of Get Right With God, I mean, that song kind of almost works as a counterpoint to Atonement on your next album, World Without Tears, you know, yes. where, where Get Right With God, it's kind of like a longing for a, a divine encounter and atonement is more of like kind of rejection of religious manipulations. And, you know, for, right. for people like like all three of us who are from the South, you know, concepts like sin and salvation are kind of much more at the, at the forefront of, of Southern life. But I understand that, that yes. both your, you know, grandparents were, or grandfathers were preachers. And um, I'm mm -hmm. curious kind of what role spirituality and, and theology plays for you in terms of your, your songwriting. Well, um, boy, that's a big <laughs> wide open door right. I mean well first of all I mean you know my grandfather on my mother's side I mean her father was a Methodist minister I don't know why he was Methodist he he seems like he should have been Baptist because he right. was more hellfire brimstone and you know right that's bad and you're going to hell and you know she struggled with all that kind of stuff sure her whole life and it all came to ahead for some reason after she married my dad and she just kind of went off the rails, you know, hmm. and she was diagnosed with severe mental illness. And I'm sure a lot of it came from, you know, her background yeah. and all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, she had this, she, there was a boy, she told me about this guy she wanted to date, wanted to go out with, and her parents didn't want her to because he was Catholic. Right. You know, that kind of thing. And it's a complete different background than environment, you know, than my dad grew up in. You know, his dad was a Methodist, was a Methodist minister and, um, you know, was a Christian uh, in the true sense of the word. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he who eventually left the church because, you know, it was too repressive. Right. Um, you know, my dad's father was a he was a conscientious objector in World War One, wow. which was unheard of. Yeah. You know, so those kinds of minds. Right. And, um, you know, so and then my dad, 
you know, later on, he when I was growing up, he identified as agnostic, mm-hmm. you know, which was kind of an easy way out, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, um, and we went, you know, although I had been to some, in, with my grandparents, you know, to church a few times and everything, but when I was growing up, we went to the Unitarian Church. Right. You know, which was where everybody went when... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to go to a regular church, you know, but they still kind of wanted to go to church, you know, this whole right. thing. So it, it it was kind of a mismatch, you know, mishmash. And then, you know, when I got to my, when I was in my teens and, you know, that's when I started exploring different avenues, just like a lot of kids, you know, in the 60s. Right. Um, the whole Eastern thing and all that, you know. Um, and, um but the whole, you know, really more importantly, I mean, I think it was the literature, being from the South, hmm. um, and the literature that I was exposed to, again, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, um, and other music, you know, of the South, um, that, you know, embraced all these image, all this imagery, hmm. um, which just really pulled me in. And I would have to say Flandre O'Connor the most. Right. And, you know, her book, Wise Blood, really just (laughs) kicked me in the ass. I mean, that and the movie that was made from it. Right. You know, if anybody ever wants to understand my music in that regard, I highly recommend watching Wise Blood. Huh. Huh. You know, um... It just, it's just all in there. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I mean, the one of the, I can't, again, it's, you know, I wish I could verbalize more, you know, I wish I could verbalize this in a better way, but I guess that's why I write songs because, you know, yeah, but I I really, I, I, I have to say, I'm really appreciating your questions. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, you know, very, you know, I don't often get asked questions, you know, get to talk about, or, you know, about get asked questions that from someone who knows who Flannery O'Connor is. From, <laughs> you know, it happens, you know, right. but not all the time. What's funny, Scott and I were actually in English class together. Yeah, so in high school. Oh, God. We actually okay. read the books well, together. We that's, read. That's true. Yeah. Right. And yeah. All the short stories. And um, it, it's funny that we're going from uh, sort of a discussion about religious imagery into talking about a song called Righteously. <laughs> but another great yeah. track from World Without Tears. Um, that was another top mm-hmm. 10 AAA single. Um, it earned you yet another Grammy nomination for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance. You don't have to prove your manner to me constantly. I know you're the man, can't you say? I love you righteously. Why you wanna diss me after the way you've been kissing me? After those pretty things you say, and the love we made today. When you run your hand all up and run it back down my leg, get excited and bite my neck, get me all worked up like that. Uh, at the time when the nominations were coming out, there were several artists who were nominated. Lauren Hill was in a lot of the year-end lists that I was in, and 
you know, I hadn't heard her stuff yet. And I decided, you know, when a lot, when, you know, I used to, when I'd go in and look at the nominations of these artists, a lot of them I wouldn't have heard before. Hmm. And so this one year, I decided, this is when Tower Records was still alive. I decided, okay, I'm going to go down to Tower with a list. I'm going to get some of these artists and finally listen to some, some of these people who I've somehow missed, you know. And it proved to be very educational and worthwhile. And one of them was Lauren Hill's eponymous album, um, which inspired Righteously. Huh. Um, you know, and the other one was uh, Diana Krall, hmm. who had done this great album of Bossa Nova, you know, Portuguese songs. That her that album inspired uh, my song over time. Hmm. And um, so you see, like a lot, it's very important to listen to sure. other. You know, it's just listening to different albums, listening to different artists can, you know, open a door to different ideas and and everything. Yeah. And I was exploring, but. It's not like I all of a sudden just then, you know, liked that kind of music. I mean, you know, it was it was really a matter of time before I started exploring kind of more something besides the country folk world. Yeah. I would have never imagined the the Lauren Hill connection, but now that you say mm -hmm. that and, you know, lines in that song like arms around your waist i get a taste of how good this yes. can be like it's almost a hip-hop kind of cadence i know yeah. and uh, i got in i started exploring a little bit more hip-hop stuff you know after that yeah. really um one of my favorite artists is he goes by the name atmosphere um my husband tom turned me on to him he's based in minneapolis huh. where tom's from and um I got to meet him when I played there recently. He came to the show, and he's a fan of mine. And you know, he's a great writer. Yeah. He just he just he just happens to write in that, you know, in that milieu. Sure. You know, and that's what I started realizing was, you know, there are great writers everywhere. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, and and I like that. Another group I really admire is Thievery Corporation. Yeah. Hmm. Um, because I love what they do with different, they kind of blend, you know, jazz and hip hop and, you know, world music kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, I got to where I think it comes from the, uh, it's, you know, kind of blues based. And I mean, a lot of the several hip hop artists, I think, are, you know, it's a combination. I mean, really it goes back to you know the one of my favorite recordings of all time gil scott heron mm, you know yeah. the revolution will not be televised yeah. i mean yeah you know that that's i love that kind of yeah. stuff yeah yeah well after yet another critically acclaimed album called west in 2007 there was a bit of a shift with your 2008 album little honey you know you had carved out a niche for yourself writing songs about longing and love gone wrong but then we start seeing songs like Honeybee and Real Love that are celebrating love gone right. 
Um, yeah. you know, listeners tend to listen to an album and, and they'll look for signals. Oh, what's going on in Lucinda's life? And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about that. It, it, are you someone that writes, you know, from an autobiographical standpoint, or do you tend to kind of just write songs in character to kind of get out a certain emotion? Well, no, it's the majority of the time is in a definitely autobiographical vibe, you know, or mode. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've tried to, I've been trying to kind of experiment in the way that, you know, and write about another character. I mean, kind of take myself out of that a little mm. bit, you know. Um, but for me, it's just always been easier to to write about, you know, my own personal experiences. Right. But, you know, I love writing about, I mean, like the way Bob Dylan did, you know, that song Hurricane and... Hmm. Uh, you know, he was so good at that. Right. And, um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, it's easily, you know, the thing about that album though, like real love, what those, the songs on some of the songs, a little honey were written during the same time I was writing the songs for West. Hmm. And I actually wanted West to be a double album, but at the time my label lost highway, you know, didn't want to do that. Mm. I had to put aside some of the songs, which later came out on Little Honey. In the meantime, Tom and I got engaged. And so, and then Little Honey came out. So everybody assumed that all the songs of Little Honey were about Tom. <laughs> it was <laughs> right. really kind of confusing. You know, so, you know, some of them were, some of them weren't. And, you know, um, then Tom was okay with that, you know, but I mean, it was kind of confusing for the fans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. but, like Honey Bee was written for Tom. That was probably our first kind of real, you know, happy blues song. I think it's the first one I'd ever written like that. This might sound like an odd question, but I'm always interested in how songwriters sort of keep up with their ideas. I mean, do you do you record things into your phone or write things down in journals or put them on scratch pieces of paper? How do you kind of keep track of your thoughts? Um, mostly writing stuff down on a piece of paper um, before the pandemic when I would be at a restaurant or a bar. Um, I would write stuff down on a paper napkin, you know, like huh. if I'm sitting at a bar or something. Yeah. And it, it might, I, maybe I've heard somebody say something and I'll turn to Tom and I'll say, boy, that was a good line. Or I might be watching a movie and hear somebody say something, you know, that was a good line. Either that or I just think of something in my head or, but anyway, yeah, everything gets written, written down right away. And I've, so I've got a lot of, cocktail napkins i keep everything <laughs> right you know i don't throw anything away until i've used it so i've got this whole big briefcase of you know scraps of paper and notes and stuff and um but also files of songs that i've started and maybe haven't quite finished or you know that sort of in various 
stages of completion. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I do use the voice record thing, um, on the phone. Like if I get a melody in my head, you know, with a little lyric, like, you know, some kind of little hook thing or something. Yeah. I have to put it in there. Yeah. So I won't forget. I've actually heard that Keith Richards, when he wants to send a text, he writes it on a cocktail napkin, takes a picture of it, and texts the photo. Oh, wow. I heard that. That's amazing. I don't, huh. I don't know if that's true that's or not, cool. but I like it. <laughs> do you do you follow like a particular discipline in terms of, I'm going to write a little bit every day and set aside time for this, or do you kind of like to wait no. until the inspiration strikes and no, sit down? No, I'm not very... Di- I'm not... That and I used to feel bad about that, that I don't have that disciplinary structure. Yeah. Um, but everybody's different. And I I found out found out over the years that, you know, it's whatever it, the final result is what's important. Yeah. And I tend to write um it's been described to me, it was described to me by a therapist I was seeing at one point actually, because I was worried about this. This is when God, I think back in the 80s and I felt like I was going through a dry spell and I was worried and anxious about it. She said, you work on a J curve. It's called a J curve, like a candy cane or J, the letter J where you just go along and, you know, not, not much output is, you're not seeing much output. And then all of a sudden there's this big swoosh, (laughs) you know, of creativity. And that's, that's my that's how I, hmm. more how I you do things. And it's true because once I get into that, I mean, I might have a little ideas here and there, but then, you know, I don't sit down and apply myself like every single day, you know, and right. have this goal, like I'm going to write five songs a week or something. Um, you know, but once I do get in, I sit down with my guitar, get all my notes out and all my, you know, spread it out on the table. and I leave it out and I get in this kind of writing cocoon, you know, that for, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks or something, you know, where that's all I do. Yeah. You know, uh, it seems so, to have worked out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Blessed album from 2011 was your last with your longtime label Lost Highway before launching your own Highway 20 records and releasing Down Where the Spirit Meets the Bone in, in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that one album of the year from the Americana Music Association. Um, yes. The opening track, Compassion, is unique in that it was a collaboration with your father. Always a sign of things no ears have heard. Always a sign. Things no eyes have seen You do not know What wars are going on Down there Where the spirit meets the bone Down there Where the spirit meets the bone Down where the spirit meets the bone For years I've been wanting to take one of my dad's poems and try to make it into a song. And I was trying to do it with this, I left out a whole thing, the religious thing, but this kind of gets back to that. The poem I was trying to work into a song is called, Why Does God Permit Evil? (laughs) So you see my dad, you know, go back and read a lot of his earlier poems. 
are dealing with a lot of that. Right. You know, those questions that we all have, you know, if God is there and present, you know, why is all this bad stuff happening? My dad, finally, you know, he wrote a poem about it. And, um, you know, it's got some humor in it and everything, but it's this long rambling poem and I was never able to succeed with it. Hmm. And then when I was working on the songs, when I was in a songwriting mode, Tom, my husband suggested, he said, you know what, why don't you try the try it with compassion with his poem? And, you know, I said, okay, let me take a stab at it, you know. It's quite challenging and yeah. really, a, you know, very educational because, you know, it took me back to uh, the 60s when I first discovered Bob Dylan's album, Highway 61 Revisited. And my dad was teaching creative writing and he had all his students would come over to the house all the time and hang out and, you know, drink and discuss riding with my dad, you know, till all hours of the night. And I remember one of the, yeah, it's a great environment, actually. I miss it. <laughs> You're right. But right. one of the uh, big debates they would have was whether Bob Dylan was a poet or not, you huh. know. And because you remember if, when he first came, when, he, when those albums came out, everybody was so blown away, right. you know, by his literary leaning. You know, and so they all said, oh, Bob Dylan's a poet. Bob Dylan's a poet. And my dad said, no, he's not a poet. He's a songwriter. You know, they go back and forth. And I would overhear these conversations. So finally, now I'm sitting down with a poem written by my dad and trying to make it into a song. And I'm realizing, hmm, you know what? My dad was right. There are hmm. two different animals altogether. Huh. You know. That doesn't mean one can't influence the other and, you know, combine to make this amazing thing, which is what Bob Dylan was doing. But, you know, um, but I think my dad just, you know, he appreciated the distinction. Sure. You know, yeah. and, um, you know, but it was never more clear to me than when I sat down and tried, because you can't just slap a melody on it. Right. You know, and... So I had to take it and, you know, work with his original lyrics, but create like a verse and some kind of little refrain and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And right. I mean, it was ultimately really enjoyable, um, you know, and so, but I, I'm glad I had the experience, but it's, there are definitely two different, two different, you know, things. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about your most recent album, Good Souls, Better Angels, which was released earlier this year. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, you've typically worked as a solo songwriter in the past, but you've mentioned your husband, Tom, a few times. And, and a number of the songs on the most recent record were uh, co-written with um, Tom, which is kind of a, I think there was maybe one song you guys wrote together on the previous record, but you know, it's, it's yeah. kind of a, a, a newer thing. Um, talk about the, the process of how the two of you kind of um, collaborate with one another in terms of songwriting. Well, you know, I mean, it kind of started with, I mean, Tom's always, you know, been into creative writing and everything. 
Um, and, you know, but he was always very quiet about it, you know. Hmm. Um, he, he worked as, when we met, he was working for Fontana, which is a distribution company, part of UMG. And so he was working in marketing and doing A&R and all this stuff, right. you know. I never thought that I would get involved with somebody in the music business, but it, <laughs> right. a, it actually turned out to be the best combination, you know, because before that I was always with other, other musicians and it just never worked, Yeah, you know? Um, and here I was with, you know, a couple of times, you know, we would, you know, we'd get into arguments and I remember one time he was supposed to come meet me at this club. I was with, one of my girlfriends at this club, uh, it was uh, the Mint in LA. Right. And Tom was, we were supposed to have a date and he was apparently caught up in a meeting and he didn't show up. And I called him and he said he couldn't make it. And I threw the phone down and it was still on and I didn't realize <laughs> it and I was mad. And I said to my friend, I said, fucking record company guy. <laughs> you know, <and laughs> Tom heard that. And it's, we tease each other about that sometimes, you know. <laughs> right. But anyway, um, but, you know, he started showing, I mean, they were good ideas, you yeah, know. Yeah. And he was always real kind of shy and hesitant about it. But then he got kind of a little braver as things went on. And so when I was working on songs for this last album, you know, he was showing me things and, you know, ideas that he had right? And for songs and, you know, and he would always say, well, you don't have to use this. Don't feel, you know, pressured about it or anything. I just thought this might be a cool idea. And I just started opening myself up to it more. Yeah. You know, I'd never been into, had any success really with co-writing. The few times I'd done it, just nothing had come of it, you know? Right. And... But all of a sudden now, something was happening with all this, and I was, and it, it, I think it turned out to be, you know, fruitful collaboration. And I like to think of it as, you know, something like Tom Waits and his wife Kathleen, right? You know, like what they do, what they started doing together. Yeah. You know, one of those songs is "Man Without a Soul," and it's probably one of your more pointedly political songs to date, you know, mm -hmm. given the degree to which the country is divided right now and the, the overwhelming social challenges that we're facing. Do you think that's mm -hmm. affected your process, you know, in, in terms of, you know, not just something that you want to say, but feeling like something that you need to, to address? Yeah, this was that kind of album. I mean, yeah. it's just that, and by the way, that was Tom's idea. The, mm -hmm. the man, the line, man without a soul. You know, yeah. and, but there were a few songs that I'd been working on, you know, over the last two or three years that were addressing some of these issues, you know, or even before that, yeah. um, because they were just so prominent. And I mean, you know, you just couldn't turn away from it. I mean, it just had to come out. And, you know, the other thing, part of it is though, too, is that and this was something that was a very big growth big uh really positive growth period for me which as a songwriter and that was when I, tom and i met and got engaged and 
you know, made a commitment with each other. And um, I realized, you know, well, as a songwriter, now this is a real big deal here because, you know, I'm going to have to start branching out in terms of what I'm writing about. You know, so that started happening as far back as the Blessed album. And you hmm. can see it because when you go back and you see like that song Blessed, for instance, um, you know, could be applied to what's going on now. And also, um, you know, you were or born to be loved. That was another one. So I was already starting to, you know, move into different territories besides unrequited love. Thank God. Yeah. Because, you know, like, <laughs> you can't keep writing about that forever, right. you know. Um, and some songwriters, I mean, some artists keep themselves in, you know, chaos because they think they're going to, you know, make better art. And that's a whole other subject. But <laughs> I decided to take this turning point in my life and apply it to my songwriting in a positive way because it's something I've been wanting to do anyway. Right. Even before Tom, which was to, you know, write more topical songs, song again, um, you know, I hate to keep using Dylan as a example, but you know, his, the topical songs he wrote about social injustice in the sixties, you know, were just incredibly great, beautiful songs. Right. And in my mind, nobody's really done it like that, you right. know, and, but they're hard for me as a songwriter. I mean, I've tried before and they're hard to do, you know, so right. it's much easier for me to write a song about unrequited love than a song like, you know, like he wrote, like Masters of War or something. So, hmm. This was a big turning point. So I'd already been, you know, dabbling in that before. And so, you know, obviously things were getting worse and worse and worse in this country, you know, and it was just felt like it was bearing down, weighing on me, everybody, you know, Tom, our friends. I mean, that's all anybody would talk about every day. Right. You know, that what was happening in the country. And so, you know, it's no surprise that these songs would be, you know, would have more of that tone. To right. Them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But um, one of the songs on the new album was actually written back when I was working on the West album or the Little Honey album around that time. And that one is... Um, bone of contention right so yeah so i've been trying to address these issues for a while yeah you you, you mentioned buffalo springfield uh, a while ago and i thought i maybe detected a little nod to buffalo springfield in man without a soul Truth, a man of greed, 
A man of hate, a man of envy and doubt. You're a man without a soul. All the money. That's interesting. I think we talked about that in the studio, maybe. Yeah, some of this stuff kind of comes up, you know, sort of subconsciously, I think. Yeah. You yeah. know, but yeah. Well, there's, you know, a lot of great stuff on, on the most recent record. You Can't Rule Me is, is a really cool. I I uh, saw that recently, you playing that on, on Colbert. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, very like a really cool kind of defiant song and big black train kind of like talks about depression. I mean, you're, you're really dealing yeah. with some like serious issues on this record, but in mm -hmm. a way that, uh, it's, it's not overwhelming. There's still like a, a hopefulness to it and it's a really, yeah. uh, it's a great, a great record. So, um, you Thank know, you, 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 you keep, uh, churning Thank out you. the, the quality. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. <laughs> That's all I can do. It's kind of who I am, you know? So yeah, yeah I live to write and I write to live. So yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it shows and we are, uh, thank huge you. admirers of your, yeah. your music. And so thank you for just spending some time with us. Well, thank you a lot and I really appreciate the questions and you know meeting you virtually take care okay you too bye thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts iTunes Spotify Stitcher or your podcast app of choice if you like the show we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Let's roll it down for